We're in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Verse 1. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we assemble in this building today, Lord, to worship and to glorify you and your Son, Jesus Christ, we ask, Lord, that you would Grant us wisdom and knowledge and discernment of your word. God, we ask that you would grant us forgiveness of our sins and iniquity, Lord, and remove that sin far from us. God, give us a grief over sin. Give us a burden for righteousness. Righteousness that belongs only to your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word, that we may read it, that we may meditate upon it. That you would also give us your Holy Spirit who would reveal the truths of Christ in this scripture. And we ask this morning, Lord, that you would do so. So that you would continue to sanctify us. Lord, not for our own good simply, but Lord, for the good of your kingdom. So that men may know how wonderful and how powerful you are. Lord, the power of the gospel message of your son that it can transform lives. God, as we read this. This morning we ask that you would give us a proper biblical and scriptural understanding of faith. Father, we just ask that as we walk through this life that you would cause us to walk in true faith. Truly relying and believing that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. That he is your son. That he is God incarnate. That he has come and died for our sins, Lord, that we may be forgiven those transgressions not that we could continue in them god but that you would transform us and change our lives in such a way that we would forsake sin god help us to walk in faith not of our own accord of our own ability god but cast our thoughts upon christ that we may not forsake the cross it's in his name that we pray this this morning amen so as we Look at the first three verses of Hebrews. We see that the author of the Hebrews is really in this particular passage beginning to conclude all that he has said up until this time. We've talked uh, about faith, about, of course, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, his sufficiency on the cross. And so the conclusion really sort of begins here in the first three verses. Everything that he's written up until this point Uh, has reached a precipice here in the first three verses and from chapter 10 he's spoken of the confession marking true faith the faith of those who are truly repentant believing and resting upon christ in his sufficiency and his sacrifice for the remission of sin and it's a confession that a sincerely regenerate man has that is a hope a sure hope an assurance 
that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, that He is the Lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, that He's not a byproduct or a plan B, but the plan of God from the beginning of time, from before the beginning of time, that He would come and ransom men to Himself, reconcile men to God. His confession is worked out as we see through the Hebrews in love and faith. And as I mentioned this morning, the love of God is not just simply one word. Love can't be summed up in one word, but it can be summed up in all that makes God God, His attributes, His forgivingness, His long-suffering, His mercy, His kindness, His gentleness. The fact that He would punish sin and be a just God amidst the forgiveness and the mercy a righteous God. This is what true faith really is. It's this love. And it's lived out on behalf of Christians, followers of Christ, in a walk of obedience and a walk of faith. Faith that on one hand says that God will justly punish sin. That He won't simply overlook sin and allow sin and live near sin. He certainly won't revel in the sin of man against Himself. But still, on the other hand, for those who trust God, who have this particular faith granted to them on behalf of God and Christ, the sin has already eternally been punished. All of our sins, past, present, and future, were paid for upon Calvary's cross. There's not one that has been missed, one that's been overlooked, one that is to come that hasn't been paid for, but certainly the blood of Jesus has paid for every sin that a believer in Christ will commit and has already committed. So there's that twofold representation there. This means that faith reveals the existence of remission. Faith in Christ reveals the existence of one who has caused us to have remission for sins, who himself has been the propitiation bringing forth this remission. Also, he is the satisfying work of God that he would satisfy The wrath of God taking the wrath upon Himself, being crushed, drinking down the full measure of the wrath of God that is represented in the cup. And so we have this faith, this propitiation. It all hinges upon the person of Jesus Christ, God incarnate. And we now have come to the truth of the persons of God, who Jesus is, and what it means to have an authentic faith. That means that we expect that because God is God that there will be a judgment. There will be justice for sin. Not that it will be bypassed. There won't be some alternate program. A different way. But that He'll be just in judgment. But it also relies our faith upon the forgiveness of sin. The forgiveness through the death burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ and certainly uh, culminating in the ascension of Christ. He's ascended into an intercessory position, the throne of God, which is very unique. It's a throne in heaven. Only God can sit upon that throne. And so as we read the Hebrews, we see that we're to not only have faith, a lot of people claim to have faith, but we're to live faith. We're to walk in faith. Faith will not just dictate our speech and what we say that we believe about the persons of God, but faith will also dictate our actions. 
It will dictate what we do and how we behave, how we view things, how we respond to different circumstances, different events, how we respond to people, how we respond to sin. It's a total transformation. Faith is lived out. Faith dictates how we act. And then as we begin to read the first verses, we see that faith causes people to overcome and persevere. And for believers, this faith is represented in verse 1 by a cloud of witnesses. It says, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us. It's a blessed truth. There has been a great cloud of witnesses, a mass of proof. People before you and I. The forefathers. A collective of assurance that Jesus Christ is sufficient for salvation. That by living by faith, the people of God will be blessed both temporally and immediately on this earth and certainly spiritually and in the life to come. This is the truth about the witnesses surrounding. The author is saying here that men are to be admired to some degree, but not for just any reason. He says this great cloud of witnesses surrounding us. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin. It's telling us there that as we should also do this, that those witnesses before us did this. They did, in fact, lay aside every encumbrance and sin. They're to be admired for the faith that they expressed, the faith that they not only said that they have, but the faith that was proof, that was evident, that could be visually understood. It was a continued trust and fruit-bearing Not that sin was gone, not that sin just somehow disappeared, but in spite of sin, these men and women continued to live. And in the immediate context, it's certainly speaking of of Abraham and Moses, uh, those men who would enact upon the faith that God had granted them to continue to live out, not according to the flesh. But it tells us that in spite of sin, in spite the fact that it still exists, these men would live not according to the flesh, but according to the spiritual man. The sin still existed. There was still a stench represented as we see that Lazarus comes forth from the grave. Uh, One of the shortest uh, verses in the Bible, one one of the shortest, not the shortest, but one of the funniest to me is, surely by now he stinketh. But he would say, come forth Lazarus, and they would take the grave clothes off. The idea is that he was been brought back to life, but the truth is that sin still existed. There's still that stench, but there is not the stain. That's the truth of Christ. That's what faith is about. It's about living according to Christ instead of according to the flesh. And so we see that sin, to some degree, isn't removed. Though we see in the Psalms, we see prayers, may sin be far removed from me. Sin still exists. We can't escape it in this life. So, what's the point? The point is that we must live by faith because we can't live by legalism. We can't live by law-keeping. We can't gain or earn merit. That's the point. Sin is never completely removed in this life, nor are the earthly consequences of sin. There will still be earthly consequences of this said sin. The truth is that When we speak of living by faith, we're speaking of the fact that the joy of sin, the embrace of sin, the desire of sin, these things are removed. 
And in their place, instead of the joy of sin, there's a grievance over sin. Instead of embracing, embracing sin, we free, flee from sin. Excuse me. And instead of desiring sin, we desire righteousness. And because we don't desire sin, not only do we desire righteousness, but we certainly desire forgiveness. These things are removed and replaced with the things that I lastly mentioned. One who is living by faith has not the time to focus on the wants of the flesh, but rather upon the things that are spiritual in nature. One who honestly lives by faith is not focused on themselves, focused on the temporal, but they're focused upon Christ and the cross. A work that is not being done, but a work that is finished in Him. Like the men of faith mentioned in the previous chapter, we must also be witnesses. It says, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, that means that because the men before us were witnesses, to the faith that they had in Christ, we must also live by faith that we may be a witness for those to come after. We're not excused from that. It doesn't end with Abraham or Moses. It doesn't end with your pastor. It's just the beginning. We're to continue to walk in faith. The witnesses mentioned serve a twofold purpose in their faithful living. First and foremost, of course, living by faith is glorifying to God. When you live by faith and not according to the flesh, You're glorifying God. It's God honoring to live faithfully and obediently. Second of all, our faith inspires the brethren to also live for Christ, to also walk according to faith, to also forsake sin, to grieve over sin, to not desire the things that we once desired. Uh, Most assuredly, we we have a, a, a wonderful witness when we live a life of faith Uh, obedient to God and things are going good but then there's those times when someone is seems to be downtrodden they're facing some uncertain circumstances and events and they still live faithfully what a great witness it is for the church for us as individual believers to see someone living according to faith and following Christ in every sense of the imagination especially amidst adversity we exist as a light Why would we exist as a light if we're not to live out faith? Faith has that twofold purpose, to glorify God and to be an example, just as Christ has been an example, to live according to the statutes and precepts that God has given us. In contrast to the the earlier man, the earthly man, before regeneration, we see that we walked in trespasses and sin, We were dead, and now, on the contrary, we're to walk according to faith and not by sight. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says that our transition from a walk of the things that are seen, the things that are visible, the things that are temporal, the things that are discerned by every man who has physical vision, now transforms into walking by faith the things that are unseen, These things symbolize the very transformation of our focus lifted from the brevity of this life to the extension of eternity in the next life. We're not focused upon the things of now, the things of here, the things of the present, but we're focused upon the things of the future because God is eternal. We can't even say that we're focused necessarily on the things of the past. Certainly 
the crucifixion of Christ historically is in the past, but the truth is that it's being applied here and now. Men are still being saved by that which happened 2,000 years ago. The gospel hasn't expired. The message of Christ hasn't changed. It's symbolized in this transformation as we see walking from uh, by faith instead of by sight. It's a transformation from walking fleshly to walking spiritually. This denotes that the very existence and accomplished work of Christ as He does this through the very miracle of regeneration it still exists. God, the Creator, is still creating. Create in me, God, a clean heart, a new heart. Chapter 5, verse 17 that we read this morning. A new creature created. God is still at work. The Bible is very clear about faith. True faith is always accompanied by conviction. In reality, true faith is the substance of conviction. Conviction of the person of Christ. The conviction of sin that comes as we begin to know who Christ is. Because as we experience Christ, we don't just see Him as a person. To truly know Christ means that we realize that there is true morality. There's true righteousness. Because of that, now we can be convicted over sin. Now we have an understanding of what sin is. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Conviction of sin. You can't necessarily see sin. You can't see a lustful heart. You can't see a murderous mind. You can't see an idolatrous thought. But it exists. So there must be a conviction first of who Christ is. The basis and foundation of faith. Knowing who Jesus is. There's no substitute. We can't win someone to Christ through good works, good deeds, through lifestyle evangelism, service evangelism. All these things are great. They should accompany the gospel, certainly, but they'll never bring someone to Christ. The message of who Christ is brings someone to Christ. The truth of the gospel, the living word of God. This is the foundation of faith. We must be convicted first and foremost of who Christ is. One true conviction comes of the person of Christ. Then certainly we may now be shifted to a conviction over sin, seeing man as God sees man. Seeing other men as God sees other men. But then when we take this into the church, like we read this morning in Sunday school, we're no longer looking to the physical person. We're not looking at the past, at the sinful man, but we're looking at Christ who lives in the man. We view things differently because we have an eternal perspective. We must be convicted over who Christ is. Faith must come by hearing of the Word, and we can't compare one another to each other. As Paul so clearly stated in 2 Corinthians, we can't compare man to man but we must compare man to God and then as we see that God has saved a man we look 
to Christ. We see Christ. We see the perfect righteousness of God. Faith isn't a thing. Like most people want to say, well, what is faith? The, the real thing is that we should say is faith is a lifestyle. Faith only exists because of a person. Without faith, no man will please God. True saving belief is repentant faith. There's no other kind of faith unless it's a false faith. It's a dying faith. It's a damning faith without Christ. We as Christians have a strong history of faithful witnesses, and that's what uh, the, the author of the Hebrews is building upon as he begins in verse 1 of chapter 12. There is a long line of faithful witnesses. That means there is not an excuse for you and I to, to discontinue that. Matter of fact, we're required to continue. Let us also be strong witnesses. So then, uh, as verse 1 progresses, we're commanded to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with the endurance, the race that is set before us. Lay aside encumbrances. Lay aside sin. The key to this verse is the precedence with the words, let us also. You can't be the first person to claim to have faith and not lay aside sin. It doesn't work that way. History tells us in verse 1 that they did it, so we must also do it. There's no excuse. You can't continue to live in sin. You can't continue to chase the things of the flesh, the carnalities of the flesh, the desires of this life, and still express faith in Christ. It won't be a saving faith. Like I said, it's a, it's a condemning faith. But the key is let us also. This means that each witness before us had a true grasp of, of the gospel. Even before Christ in the Old Testament, there was a true grasp of the gospel, though it was shadowed, though it was veiled, that Christ the Messiah must come. There will be an ultimate sacrifice. Surely, men of God knew this. They rested upon it. It was accounted to them faith and righteousness because of how they believed in God, because they knew the plans of God to reconcile men to Himself. There's a restriction here in this verse. Verse replaced upon the flesh, placed upon the on the flesh rather. Everyone who will be saved must set these things aside. We have to ask ourselves as a church: Have we laid aside our encumbrances? Have we laid aside sin? Do we embrace sin? Are we living in sin? I don't have to see it. It's not the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. It's the inward man. You can fool me all you want. It doesn't do any good. You can fool yourselves, actually. That's the danger of having a false faith. We need the gospel. It isn't merely a trade-off of something good for something better. It doesn't mean set down and set aside your sin and the encumbrances because you think, hey, eternal life's a little better. That's not what he's saying either. That'll do you no good. That's legalism. It isn't a pious sacrifice, but it's death to sin for the sake of righteousness. Not for the sake of anything else. There are plenty of, of benefits to knowing Christ and being in a relationship with Christ, but if you give up anything for the benefits and not for the Savior, it's done you no good. 
builds really upon the message that we had last week of the rich young ruler uh, to gain something, to gain eternal life and yet not know the Savior, it wouldn't be any good anyway. It would be pitiful. The truth is every man will have an eternal life whether it be in hell or be in heaven with Christ. But we must walk by faith and not by sight. Lay aside sin. Forsake sin. This certainly means putting down the idolatry. The root of every sin is idolatry. Something in place of Christ. And that's what the author of the Hebrews is confronting. He's confronting the fact that we must live by faith. That faith is expressed in Jesus Christ. That means He comes first. Everything that has come before that, everything that you've placed in front of that must be laid aside. That which causes you to fall, that which causes you to fail. All the things that stand between you and God in the first verse, everything that stands between you and righteousness, let it be accursed, let it be anathema, let it be forgotten. The truth is that we must lay down and die. Lay down sin. Die to the old man. Be resurrected in Christ. Be crucified with Christ. Lay down the encumbrances so that we may die to sin. Thus, now being alive in Him just as much as we in our old man are crucified with Christ. The idea is that some had confession. Some people had professed Christ as the Messiah, but faith had not been fully pursued. Are you fully pursuing faith? Or are you pursuing fellowship on Sundays and Wednesdays? Are you pursuing earthly relationships? Or is this just a byproduct of pursuing a spiritual, eternal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Messiah? There have been plenty to have false faith, false confessions, false professions. But the truth is they're seen, they're unveiled in the fact that there's no pursuit of righteousness, no continued pursuit of faith in Christ, of a blessed assurance, as we're saying this morning in Sunday school, hinging upon the person of Jesus Christ. There are those whose lives had a little resemblance to the life of Christ. They were few, if any, changes in behavior, but that's not what the author is speaking of here. He's speaking of a change in behavior that lasts. This is existent in the quote-unquote church today. There are many people in the church who don't walk by faith. There are many people who aren't Christians in the church. There may be some here. And so we need to look at this passage and examine ourselves. Who has forsaken sins for Christ's sake? Many claim the righteousness of Christ, but few attempt to live it. Righteousness for the modern professing Christian is seemingly like the faith of most existing in profession, but it's absent in execution. Many people claim it. Many people live it during the visible hours of the day when we can see, when we're on the phone, but then they go home and there's something different. There's no execution. The truth is that if Christ truly has made you a new creature, it won't be just some hours of the day or certain days of the week, but it's from this point forward. 
There's counterfeit righteousness. There's legalism. It's symbolic. We see it in the church and as we see sin entangles us. The analogy here is of a race and as we look at sin and encumbrances, we look to the outfit, the garb of the racer. Fixing our eyes upon Jesus. There's a race here. When we consider a racer, we, we look at his wardrobe and, and we notice some things about it. Is he in jeans? Is he in sandals? Is he wearing cowboy boots? Certainly not. We need to strip off the righteous, the unrighteous adornment that we have and put on the righteousness of Christ. Take off the carnalities of the flesh and be robed with Christ himself. That's what a racer needs. He needs a pair of shorts, something unrestricted, a good pair of shoes, maybe barefoot, but he, he doesn't need all of these things that would hinder us, cause us to trip, cause us to fall. That's why it's likened into a race. It says that which e easily entangles us. Sin is this garb that is not appropriate for one who's racing. It says run with endurance. The race that is set before us. Think about it. We don't simply need less sin. That, that won't do us any good to have less sin. That's what legalism brings. Legalism is just having less sin. Legalism says stop this so that you won't sin as often. If this is how we view salvation, then we also have a problem. It brings up a problem. If legalism could stop sin in its tracks, we still have to deal with the sin that we've already committed. There's the rub with legalism. We can stop. Not really, but if we could, if we could stop right now because of our legalism, stop sinning, how will we deal with the sins of the past? If we haven't placed faith in Jesus Christ, what's going to happen? Where's the just recompense? Where's the reward for that sin? Who's going to pay for that? You still need a Savior. We still have to deal with it. We've committed sin against the just and holy God. No matter if we could stop sinning from this point forward, the first sin condemns us to hell. Being born. You're born unclean. Babies come forth from the womb, it says, speaking lies. Legalism does us no good. We still have a price that needs to be paid. And God demands more than we're able to give. We don't need just to be sinning less. But what we need is grace. That's why the love of Christ, the faith of Christ, isn't just summed up in one word. It's merciful. It's forgiving. It's gracious. It's long-suffering. Legalism, think of it this way, is greater than the sin that it prevents. That is the sin to come. But grace is different. We have a, a hymn that we sing. Grace greater than all our sins. Legalism is greater than the sin that would come. But grace is greater than all our sins. Past, present, and future. That's what we need. That's what walking by faith says. Don't, don't walk by your ability to stop yourself. But walk in faith that Christ has already paid for those sins. That Christ is sufficient. If this is true, a little hint here that it is, 
Then we need grace constantly. Immeasurable grace. A simple one and done profession won't cut it. We need abounding grace expressed in the faithfulness that we have to be obedient to Christ. And therefore, when we get to verse 2, it says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 2 says we have to be constantly looking to Christ. Here's what faith looks like. We can't graduate from the gospel. There's nothing else to go to. Because safety and security only remains in one, and that's the Son of God, Jesus Christ Himself. We're in a race. The race isn't won until the end is reached. Where's the end? The death of this body and the resurrection of the new glorified body. So verse 2 says, not only look to Jesus, but reverence Him as He alone is the one who grants grace. He's the one who grants faith. It says, author and perfecter of our faith. The beginning and the end. The one who brings forth the increase of faith. That should tell us a little something. That faith isn't, like I said, one and done. It doesn't stop with just having it. It's increasing. It's growing. It's immeasurable. He endured the cross which we cannot despised the shame of such a curse and is now seated in a place, it says, on a throne of dignity, of justice, of honor and power. Jesus is at the throne of God and seated at the right hand because He is God. It's God's throne. No one else can sit there. No one has the ability. No one has the merit. No one has the clout. But God alone, Jesus Christ, the God. Only God has ever sat on the throne. Only God is sitting on the throne in heaven unless you would be willing to say that someone lesser has removed your God from the throne. Has someone lesser overpowered Him? Then certainly when it speaks of Him, the author, the perfecter of our faith, and it says that He is sitting at the right hand, then certainly He's the one who we must credit with our faith, who we must rely upon. If He's in charge, why not believe in Him? Why not trust in Him? Then verse 3 says, For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Verse 3 is a humble reminder that the race is a race to be won. To do so, we must remember what Christ has already done. In the simplest terms, Christ, as He was on the cross, announced the victory. He announced the victory is already won when He said, Tetelestai, it's finished. Now all we have to do is cross the finish line and we've won. In one sense, if you're not in Christ, you're not even in the race. You're not even a competitor. The race is already in one in Christ and believers must persevere to the end walking by faith, not by, by sight. Continuing in faith. It isn't temporary, but it's permanent. The enemy, the competition, he'll surely die and he'll finish short of the finish line. He'll fall short every time. 
short of the glory of God, lacking in the righteousness of Christ, lacking even in his own complex, twisted, contorted view of righteousness, he'll have none. He won't even have the kind that he thinks he has. Our stamina, therefore, isn't derived under the power of the flesh, but instead under the discipline of remembrance and obedience to Christ and His Word. For He endured the death of the cross, persecuting, beaten, flogged, His beard ripped out. And He carried His own cross. And He suffered ultimately the wrath of God on behalf of you and I. How dare that any one of us today think that God would allow His perfect Son to suffer the ultimate, ultimate death, yet somehow we should escape persecution. That somehow we don't have to walk in faith. It was, it was good for Jesus, but not for us. We don't need to worry about what God is doing. We don't need to trust in God. We don't need to lay anything aside. Jesus did, but we don't have to. How dare we walk like that? How dare we walk by sight and claim and profess to know Christ? Jesus had to suffer. We must also suffer. And Corinthians tells us that our suffering is really a, a light affliction compared to what Jesus suffered. Embrace it faithfully, knowing that Christ will finish what he started. It says it there in the second verse. Author and perfecter. Author and finisher in some translations. We're working towards an eternal weight of glory. His sacrifice, His endurance, His obedience, His righteousness, His perseverance, His love. We too may escape the weariness that all without Him shall surely experience. Without Christ, everyone will experience it. With Christ, we may escape it. For if Christ may suffer the greatest measures of suffering and wrath, surely He is able in these temples, these bodies... That the Old Testament temples built with hands only foreshadow, then surely we, as Christ lives here, may dwell in peace, may persevere through minor tribulations, light affliction. And so I say all that with these three verses to ask where is your faith today? Do you come to church? Do you come on Wednesdays or Sundays? Or do you get on Facebook and make your little quotes and your memes or whatever they call them and simply make them because you want someone to think that you're Christian or are you walking by faith? Are you trusting in Christ? Are you worried about tomorrow? Or is today sufficient enough? Is God's grace sufficient for you? Are you worried about a thorn in your flesh? Are you worried about someone else knowing Christ? Are you concerned enough about the gospel to bring them? And so really, the question about walking by faith or by sight is this. Are you walking with the here and now? Or are you walking with the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end? There's no substitute. The here and now won't work. You better be walking with Christ. Thinking of Christ. Casting all your thoughts and all your spare time, as Sean mentioned, upon the cross because there's no other salvation. There's no other way to win the race. 
There's no other victor. There's one victor. His name is Jesus Christ. You're either with Him or against Him. Let's go to the Lord. Fathers, we come before You once again. Lord, we thank You for the blessing of Your Word. Lord, and I just ask that through the power of Your Spirit You would minister to Your people today. Lord, that You would cause us to become less in our own sight. And God, that our thoughts of You, our desires of You would increase in place of those. God, I pray for the people in this room who may not be saved, Lord. Those who may be struggling in their walk of faith. Lord, I just pray that You would take away our blindness to sin that you would cause conviction, Lord, that you would cause us, more importantly, to see who your Son, Jesus Christ, is, to see how sufficient He is, or to see that He is the only way and that if we walk by our own sight, we'll stumble and fall. God will fail. But if we walk by faith, if we walk with your Son, we don't have to worry about winning the race because the race is already won. God, grant us, each one, the perseverance to continue to walk in your ways, to continue to forsake unrighteousness. Lord, give us ministry opportunities here at the church and in our homes and in our communities and our families. Lord, calls us to have a great burden for your gospel. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.